0: The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net.
1: I'll try this again. All right, so good morning. All right, so today we are going to be reading from Job 1 through Job 2. So um, if you can go ahead and stand, that would be great. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger of Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are all dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord had taketh it, take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or change God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present themselves before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on earth, And from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with lonesome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat on the ashes. This is the word of the Lord.
0: please pray with me. God, first we want to thank you for um, this church and for the churches you are planting around the world. Lord, on this Church Planting Sunday, we ask for even greater grace for the source. Uh, we thank you for um, the two church plants that we have been able to be a part of and we ask that you would use us still more broadly we ask that there would be more church planting in the future that you would even raise up leaders amongst us that you would give us vision for underreached areas and that you would lead us to make the necessary sacrifices so that the worship of you might go to places where it presently is not And Lord, as we turn to the book of Job today, we ask, we beg for your help. Lord, open our eyes to things that we haven't seen before. Soften our hearts. Make them fertile ground for the truths of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're entering a six-week series on the book of Job, which we're calling When God's Battlefield is You. The meaning is that behind the scenes, there's a great battle going on between God and evil, but we don't see that battle, not overtly. Sometimes we wish we did. We maybe tell ourselves that if we could just know what was going on behind the scenes, if, if Job could just have seen what was going on, it would, have, it would have made it easier for him to persevere. I, I'm not sure that that's actually the truth, but that's how we feel. But we don't see the battle as it is. We only see the seemingly senseless suffering in our lives, and we're left to wonder what in the world God is up to. Now, Job is a dangerous book to study because perhaps more than any other book in the Old Testament, it brings to surface what we already think about God. So if you are hardened and bitter toward God, then I fear for you as we enter Job. I fear that you only become more so because you're likely to demand that this book answer questions that it's purposely refusing to answer. So my prayer for you today is that God would soften your heart, allowing you to see his goodness clearly on these pages. On the other hand, if you go into this book, Trusting God, I think you will see even more beautiful contours of his trustworthiness by the time we're done with this series. And if you've been coasting somewhere in the middle, not with radical trust, not with any bitterness in particular, and if as we go along you're, you're kind of scared by some of the things that the book of Job uncovers, then I want to challenge you to wrestle with God The same way that Job does. Because one thing true faith should never be is blind. Some people view Job as a book that addresses why bad things happen to good people. But that's not actually what it is. If you're looking for clear answers as to the why of specific suffering, you will be disappointed. Job doesn't get any answers about why at the end of this book. So he does get relief, he gets restoration, and he gets a much fuller grasp of who God is and the nature of this world. So instead of focusing on the why of suffering, I'd invite you to think of Job as a study of how, how to relate to God, how to think and how not to think about the seemingly senseless suffering that will come into your life. The book of Job is 42 chapters of Hebrew poetry. How in the world could we cover that in six weeks, you may be asking? Well, we're going to focus on one character each week. We're going to start with Satan today, and then in six weeks we'll end with a focus on God himself. And you know, since our series is six weeks, so we've got, we've got 42 days to think about the 42 chapters of Job. So it would be cool if many of us could aim to read a chapter a day and just give God more opportunity to teach us from this content. And maybe as you're reading through it for yourself, it'll just raise a lot of questions. Please feel free to email me anytime. I'd love to help in any way I can. There's a lot to get our minds around in this book, and we'll also have some extra help with a 45-minute video that poetically and artistically replicates the content of the whole book. So we'll view that a week from tonight, a week from tonight. So tonight is our normal prayer meeting, our normal prayer meeting downstairs at 6 p.m. But then next week, we'll use that same slot of time to view this Job video instead. And I really, really encourage you to come to that viewing. I think you'll find it quite helpful and moving. But let's get into our content for today. Our goal is to understand what in the world is going on with Satan in these first two chapters, and to worship God more rightly and fully in light of that. So I've titled this sermon, Satan, A Killer Not on the Loose. This is a very strange narrative for many of us to take in, but it's so, so important that we do so. And the first thing that we see here, the first point, is that Satan is a killer of souls. Satan is a killer of souls. He has real power And he is a killer of souls. Now, I could just stop at Satan is a killer, and that would be also true. Jesus says in John 8, 44, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He delights in causing the death of God's people. In Luke and in Acts, various sicknesses are attributed to oppression by the devil. And certainly here in Job, we do see Satan taking physical life. He used wicked men, raiding groups from the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans to strike down many of Job's servants. And Satan also wields the elements of nature. Other of Job's servants are killed by fire and then winds blow down a house to kill Job's ten children. Satan is a killer. And yet the further point is that Satan is a killer of souls. Why does Satan cause the physical disruption and destruction in God's world does he just get pleasure from causing chaos maybe probably but we also see in scripture that Satan is a very very intelligent being so these losses and Job's physical suffering and emotional torment they are not the end goal they are merely the means the tools to a much more devious end we see this clearly in Job's story Let's recap starting in verse 6. So we've got this fascinating scene of angels here described as the sons of God. So in other words, beings who resemble in a derivative way what God is in that they are powerful spirits created by him for his own purposes. And these angels, they present themselves essentially as nobles or counselors would. They, They show up before the king to give account to him. So we see God the king sitting among his royal court, and with them, however, also appears Satan, the chief of angels who had rebelled against God and who positions himself against God's purposes. And he essentially offers God a sort of dark wager. You're so proud of your righteous servant, Job. But I bet that if you stop protecting him and if you let me strip him of all the good things you've given him, then he will curse you to, his, to your face So what is Satan after there? He's not just out to harm Job or or torment him, not just physical pain and discouragement. No, that's chump change. He wants to disgrace God. He wants to show the heavenly beings and everyone else who knows Job that God is not all satisfying, that God is not enough, that God is not worth it. It's not worth it to serve him. This all hangs on one variable for Satan. He must get Job to walk away from his God, to be cold toward his God. For beyond being just a killer, Satan is most of all a killer of souls. Revelation 12, 9 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. 1 Peter 5 says, Be watchful, sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, Seeking someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the suffering itself isn't the focus. The faith is. If you stand firm in your faith, Satan loses, no matter how your body or your finances or other circumstances are wrecked. But if you compromise your faith, even if your body and your worldly happiness are restored... Satan wins. And this is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says, uh, we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan is after the credibility of God. How will these Christians respond to suffering? Will they forsake their God? Will they grow cold toward him? Will they prove that he is not enough? And this begs the question, Are you wise to Satan's designs? If we see physical suffering or relational suffering or bad circumstances, and we're quick to see that outward circumstance in itself as what Satan wants to accomplish, might I gently suggest that we're being naive? It's good to pray for people who are sick or people in tight spots at work or at home. It's good and right to pray for circumstances to change. But that's not the main prayer that the suffering person needs. They need prayer to keep seeing Christ as most precious, no matter what. They need prayer to see the promises of Scripture as more certain than what they're feeling at that moment. They need prayer for perseverance and eternal perspective and for comfort and hope in their inner being They need prayer for support for their souls from their pastors and their family and friends. Don't pray for someone's physical or outward circumstances without praying for what's infinitely more important, the condition of their souls. They can be healed and made happy today for all Satan cares, as long as God is doubted or sinned against or denied in the process. Then they and others can just go on being hashtag blessed for the rest of their lives only to suffer apart from God forever in the end. That's what Satan wants. Let's not be outwitted. He is first and foremost a killer of souls. And the next thing we need to see is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He rules over all. We see this clearly in the heavenly scene of Job chapter 1. Satan cannot touch Job without the Lord allowing it. And Job can only be affected to the extent that God has permitted. But let's be real. We don't really like that interaction, do we? It makes us uncomfortable. But how could it be otherwise? If God is omniscient and omnipotent, then nothing can happen apart from his knowledge or allowance. And this control over all the earth is so complete that Job and his friends, they never even bother to talk about Satan. They just eliminate the middleman and they attribute these events to the providence of God. To them, Job's suffering isn't somehow a trick that Satan pulled over on God because God wasn't powerful enough or quick enough to stop it. And it's important that we see that because there is a heresy out there that would say that God has purposely limited himself so as not to be sovereign over or even knowledgeable about these things ahead of time. But such an attempt to remove God from the equation of suffering, that requires that we twist beyond recognition many, many passages in the Bible. Instead, what do we see in Job? He says in chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the correct perspective, and immediately the narrator tells us, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And in the next chapter, Job asks his wife, shall we receive good from the Lord and not trouble or disaster? In chapter 3, Job says it is God who has hedged him in. Also in chapter 9, Job is contemplating the seeming incongruity of his fate And he again, he credits God with destroying the blameless and the wicked for bringing about the calamity of the innocent, for giving the earth into the hand of the wicked. He asks, if it is not God, who then is it? Job won't resort to the easy out of saying that God is ignorant or powerless. Of course, this was Satan's work. But the book of Job frankly insists that suffering falls within the sweep of God's sovereignty. And Job's fourth and wisest friend, Elihu, he also says in chapter 37 that from God comes the whirlwind. Remember, it was a great wind that killed Job's children. Elihu says that storm clouds turn and lightning falls by his guidance. He causes it to happen. Well, Remember that when Job's sheep and servants burned, it was attributed to the fire of God, probably meaning lightning. Do we have an overly dualistic view of the universe? Do you think that good things come only from God and unpleasant things come only from Satan? What if Satan would surround you with good and comfortable things to make you numb to God? What if God would use suffering as a surgeon's scalpel to graciously remove idolatry from your heart and increase your joy exponentially thereafter? If you have a God, nice things, Satan, bad things view of the world, I'm afraid that's more akin to a yin and yang sort of philosophy than to the Bible's teaching. If you recall in John 9, Jesus said that the man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In Exodus, God asked Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Deuteronomy 32 says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. We do not live in a world where good and evil are sort of jockeying for position, and we think that God will win, but there are great uncertainties. No, we live in a world where God is all-powerful, and Satan is a created being who... Though compared with us, he is terrible in his craft and in his power. But compared with his maker, he's a stooge, a lackey, a defeated rebel who had no chance of victory from the beginning. God is sovereign. But then some misunderstanding could arise if Job was our only point of reference. Because if Job is treated this way by his God, why does he worship him? And here we rely on the rest of the Bible to remind us of what Job clings to throughout these 42 chapters. The knowledge that God is good and having relationship with him is the highest imaginable good. God is good. If the truth of God's sovereignty over suffering is difficult for you, then think of it this way. Would you rather have the powers of life and death, of suffering and relief, ultimately in the hands of one who is good and who loves you, Or would you rather that it somehow be in the hands of one who hates humanity and the goodness of creation? God's goodness makes makes us happy that he is the one who's in control of it all. As one confession from uh, 1561 states, The doctrine of God's sovereignty over suffering affords us unspeakable consolation, since we are taught by it that nothing can befall us by chance but only by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father who watches over us with a paternal care. He so restrains the devil and all our enemies that without his will and permission, they cannot hurt us. God's goodness also compels us to trust him even when we don't understand. And I want to read an excerpt from a letter that one husband and father wrote to his pastor at another church. He said, My wife and I packed the car to go to our first ultrasound. We would get the news, boy or girl, and then grab smoothies and celebrate. But as we sat in our appointment, we watched as the happy chatter of the tech quieted to a focused, silent gaze at the screen. Why was she looking so intently at the images? She got up and left the room, making some excuse about printing something off. Finally, the doctor entered. He said he regretted to inform us that the ultrasound was quite conclusive. Our daughter had spina bifida. There was also the potential of genetic disorders known as trisomy 21 and 18, Down syndrome and infant death syndrome. This is not theory anymore. This was a real-life, I-need-some-answers-now moment. Did God allow this? Worse yet, design it? Certainly, he could not be the architect of so much pain. And then it hit me. I took no consolation in haphazardness. No matter what I had thought I believed in the past, the only place where hope was found in that moment was in the hands of a sovereign God who is in control and ordains the falling of a sparrow and the electing of kings and the factors of a bus accident, and the spinal development of our precious daughter. It was here that hope was found. And hope, being the seedbed for joy, began growing in our hearts, a joy that could truly be shaken by no pain. Now, what did that family embrace at that moment, at that decisive moment? Yeah, they embraced the sovereignty of God, but they also, more importantly, they clung to the goodness of God. They trusted that a life and, and perhaps a premature death that looked quite different from what parents would ever desire for their children could somehow lead to beauty and goodness and meaning much deeper than the pain we see on the surface. And this could be possible because God, the sovereign one himself, is inherently good, he is the very definition of good. And we read about that goodness all over Scripture. In the beginning, God saw everything that he had made. And he said, behold, it is very good. And God tells Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And the Psalms again and again and again declare things like, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I will wait for your name, for it is good. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You are good and you do good. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty And Jesus explicitly said, no one is good except God alone. And Titus 3 unpacks the gospel by saying, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So if we know this God, we can declare, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Clearly God's sovereignty over suffering in no way competes with or diminishes his goodness. But how can one who is perfectly good be sovereign over evil and yet not commit evil himself? There's mystery here. But we are told clearly in Scripture that God is not culpable for evil, that he does not tempt anyone, and that he takes no delight in and the destruction of any. Our suffering does grieve our God. Remember even Jesus' tears at Lazarus' tomb that we saw last week. But it is ordained nonetheless. Such a God is beyond our reasoning, beyond our understanding. And if we demand answers, or if, if we demand an explanation of the mechanics of it all, we will be disappointed Because he owes us nothing more than he's already revealed. But for me, this complex mystery is good evidence of God's reality and his transcendence. He is not like us. He is above us. He is beyond us. And we cannot comprehend all of his ways. If you recall the account of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50, his brothers had done unspeakable harm to him. And yet, after reconciliation, he declared, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And that's exactly the same dynamic that we see whenever God's people, like Job or Joseph, undergo unspeakable suffering. Satan and perhaps those he's using meant it for evil, but God designed it for much good. And that leads to our final point that while our sovereign God gives some sobering permissions in this world, Satan is ultimately playing into God's plans. The harm he causes cannot thwart God's good plans, but instead fits into them. Though we don't, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves uh, in, this, in this Job series, we do see in Job's experiences, this is what's happening. How else other than... By having everything else stripped away, could Job know for himself? And how could the spiritual beings in the heavenly places see that relationship with God is the one essential thing that Job can't live without? One scholar put it this way. Satan, for all of his malice, is doing something necessary to the glory of God. In some deep way, it is necessary for it to be publicly seen by the whole universe that God is worthy of the worship of a man and that God's worship is in, in, in no way dependent on God's gifts. So Job's situation wasn't a surprise for God. It happened by God's express permission. In fact, if you noticed, God was the one who brought up Job. He mentioned him first. He knew full well how Satan would respond what challenge Satan would issue. And though Job appears in our Bible as as sort of an ultimate example of senseless suffering, still the, the principles are true for all of us. The accuser is permitted leeway to test the people of God and thus to prove the worthiness of God. And this is a necessary pathway to our growth and our joy and to the renewal of all things in Christ. So First Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And one chapter earlier it says, It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Hmm. He's talking about the persecution and testing of Christians, something initiated by Satan, something carried out by evil men, and yet he also says it's God's will. And we also know that it is all under God's control. In Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It shouldn't surprise us that Christians are permitted like this to suffer under Satan's deceit and intimidation and violence. After all, we follow the one whom Satan wanted most of all to harm. The Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Satan worked even through unwitting friends like Peter to discourage Jesus when he spoke of his need to suffer. And we read that Satan entered into Judas when he betrayed Jesus. Satan's scheme surrounded the life and ministry of Jesus. It even resulted in Jesus' death. Yet this was God's very plan from before the foundation of the world. And it was in that very crucifixion of the innocent Lamb of God that Satan and his minions were disarmed and put to open shame. And First John tells us that this is the very reason why Jesus appeared, to destroy the works of the devil. And in the same way, our suffering is by no means purposeless. In the pattern of our Savior, our suffering is used to purify us and others. It's used to exalt God. It's used to further put evil to shame. So what then should be the response of our hearts to Satan's limited and ultimately futile activity? As Jesus says in Matthew 10, don't fear the one who can only kill the body but has no authority over your soul. Or Martin Luther put it this way. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Now, I want to end with an illustration, and it's totally a geeked out illustration, but I think it could be helpful for us. In J.R.R. Tolkien's less famous work, The Silmarillion, The fantasy world in which the story takes place is formed as the one creator, whose name is Iluvatar, begins a musical theme, which incorporates the voices of his angelic beings, the Ainur, and it describes how that music is like unto harps and lutes and pipes and trumpets and organs, and like unto countless choirs, singing with words, and it began to fashion the theme of Iluvatar to a great music, and a a sound arose of Endless interchanging melodies woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing into the depths and into the heights and the places of the dwelling of Uvatar were filled to overflowing. And the music and the echo of the music went out into the void, and it was not void. But then an enemy arose, one of the Ainur named Melkor, who only sought to increase his own power and glory. He inserted discord, clashing dissonance, jarring violent notes into the music, until it seemed that the whole theme had hopelessly descended into chaos. But then Iluvatar stood. He raised both of his hands, and mysteriously Melkor's heinous work was woven into the theme of creation, making it more intricate. Broader, more complex, and strangely beautiful than had ever before been imagined. He sat down and spoke. I am a Luvatar, and you, Melchor, shall see that no theme may be played that has not its uttermost source in me, nor can anyone alter the music to my injury. For he who attempts this shall prove but my instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself had not imagined. That is the world in which we live. The book of Job, along with many other passages in Scripture, shows us that Satan is a killer not on the loose. He is a dragon on a chain, a lion on a leash. None of his powers, great as they are, are final or decisive. Satan's efforts were used by God to accomplish our salvation and Satan's own defeat on the cross. Satan's efforts were used by God to test and to prove Job's faith, and they are sometimes used to test and to prove the faith of you and me as well. So as we continue studying the book of Job, and as you contemplate suffering in your own life as well, pray that the schemes of Satan may be thwarted. Pray also that God's mysterious purposes would come to fulfillment swiftly. And may your Job-like, faith-filled endurance lead to greater satisfaction in the God who does reign over all.